Hello, and welcome to the Church Newtown Square podcast. If we can serve you in any way, or if you'd like to learn more about our church family or the Acts 29 network, please visit us at churchnsq.org. That's C-H-V-R-C-H-N-S-Q.org. And now, let's listen in to today's teaching. Uh, two weeks ago, so uh, John in chapter 5 uh, in chapter 15, we're at the section which is, is called the, uh, the, the Farewell Discourse. John has written this gospel so that we might know that Jesus is the Son of God. And here we find ourselves uh, past the center of the book. Jesus is uh, leaving the place where he's had the Passover supper with his disciples uh, in 14, just a, a verse above. Uh, Jesus says, get up, let's leave this place. He has washed their feet. He has had the Passover meal with them. He's about to go to Gethsemane. He's about to go to the cross. And John is uh, pointing us forward to what it is that that Jesus is about to do. This is the book of glory. The book of signs is the first book, half of the book, where uh, the signs of Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And now this is the book of glory, the glorification of Jesus Christ but the glorification of the Father as well. The, the glory of the Father is in the work of the Son. And so Jesus is giving these last-minute instructions to the disciples. Two weeks ago, uh, Nat, who was here, uh, talked about the way to forever security. He did an incredible job of showing us that Jesus is the only way uh, to point us to a security that will last forever. And he mentioned that these are the most intimate and crucial things that Jesus wanted his disciples to know uh, so that we today might know these things. Uh, This is why it's called the farewell discourse. Uh, Matthew Henry says that it is occasioned by Jesus' understanding that the disciples will probably be tempted to go back to their old ways, the back to the law of Moses. Uh, They might uh, be tempted to break up the band, so to speak, that they would go strange towards one another, that they would not remember their time together, that they would be also tempted to shrink from the mission that they've been sent to do when they meet hardship. And so Jesus reminds them of the security that they have in him, that that the the paraclete, the helper, is going to come and help them and remind them. And that, I would argue, these same temptations face us today, that sometimes we as followers of Jesus are tempted to go back to our old ways. We're tempted also to uh, forget one another. We're, we, we are uh, tempted to not love one another, to not be in fellowship with one another because we want to isolate ourselves or, or, or for whatever reason we don't want people to see the things that we're struggling with. But also we probably face the temptation as well as that when things get hard, we shrink from the mission that has been given to us which is not all that hard to understand when we are in a culture where uh, even in the workplace or at school or in our neighborhoods, being a Christian is uh, not favored or looked upon as something that is to be honored, but rather something that is uh, to be uh, warned against. These words are vitally important for us today as it was for these disciples Jesus, though, is not only speaking to the disciples here, but we have to recognize that he's speaking to them. The context, the audience is the disciples, but he's also speaking through them to us. He's not just, he's talking to them in real time, but we have to recognize that he's, he's looking forward. Jesus is always looking forward. When we read the scriptures, we, we read a, a, a gospel and we read letters that are written in real time and real history to real people, and, and there was a context that they were experiencing as well. 
uh, in their real time. But 2,000 years later, we still reach back and we pull the truce because Jesus is speaking to us through them. And we'll get more to uh, that in a moment. Nat mentioned that we face trials all the time, and he said this. He said, pain is God's gracious reminder that this world is not our home. As I listened to that when I came back from vacation, I, uh, I needed to hear that, that, that there is a reminder always coming towards us that this world is not our home. And Jesus will repeat more of the same in this next section. Uh, last week, Ricky Ortiz reminded us that we are not alone that the Holy Spirit reminds us that we are not alone. He's always present with us, that he comforts us with God's presence, that he teaches us, he blesses us with God's peace. I loved what he said. He said, when we are a church that has this peace, the peace that, that Jesus gives, in verse 27 he says, uh, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, that I don't give to you as the world gives, that the peace that we have is not that the world has. It's not, it's not uh, something that is similar to a peace that comes when uh, just things subside that are troubling. But we have a peace that is everlasting, that it is deeper, that our, our hearts need not be troubled or fearful because we have the presence of God with us. Jesus will go on in this passage that we're about to study and remind us and teach the disciples how that is possible, what is necessary for us to maintain that peace and where that peace comes from. I needed to hear that when we are a church that has this peace that, peace, that we are a church, that we can be a church that can be bold and courageous in advancing the mission of Jesus. It is so true. It is so true. I loved, last week I was uh, listening to these sermons, and I thought to myself, man, if I come back. By the way, I'm Tom, my name is Tom Adzina. I am the lead pastor here. If you've been here for the last two weeks, and you're just like, who is this guy? I apologize now. The last, two, the last two pastors who have been here preaching today, were, I was like, man, they're good. I like them. Maybe I should quit and just hire them. Uh, I needed to hear what they said. And I loved Ricky. Ricky, you in the house? Where's Ricky? Yo, he just was like, amen. I loved hearing amen. And I heard, I don't know if there was any, was there any white response? No, none. It's the, we need to have Ricky up here again to get, some, get us moving. <laughs> He was like, amen. I was like, amen, brother. I was on my back porch. But I appreciated his application to slow down and be present with the Lord last week because it sets us up perfectly for more of the same reminders this week. So this week is more of the same except the, uh, Jesus drills down a little bit. This might be a familiar text to some of you. If you're new to the church or if you're new to, to studying or follow the scriptures or following Jesus, this is a vital text. All of it is a vital text, but this in particular, Jesus does not cut any corners. He makes, it a, he makes a stark contrast between those who are connected to him and those who are not. And you would do good to pay attention and to take notes and to underline or highlight or, 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 or score underneath what it is that Jesus says in this section because this is the, the source of life. Jesus is saying, disciples, here's how you find life, and bear fruit as you're called to bear fruit. And we'll, we'll talk about what that means. So for those of you that like to take notes, here's the outline. Here's the three things that I want you to understand. When we place our faith or our trust in Jesus Christ and we live a life in pursuit of him, right? If we are Christians, if we are Christians, if we have decided to follow Jesus, if we call ourselves disciples to, the for, to live for the glory of God, then one... Fruit is to be expected in our lives, and pruning is guaranteed for all of us. 
faith is to, fruit is to be expected, and pruning is guaranteed. Two, that a disciple's faith in, obedience to, and conversations with Jesus is what keeps us connected to him. It's how we remain in him. Faith in, obedience to, and conversations with Jesus is what keeps us connected to him. It's how we remain in him. And finally, there is a deep, satisfying, and complete joy that is promised to us, not only in this life, but in the life to come, when we pursue a life of obedience to Jesus, even in the hard things. There is a deep, satisfying, and complete joy that is promised to us in this life and the life to come when we pursue a life of obedience in Jesus. First, fruit is to be expected, and pruning is guaranteed for a disciple. Look with me at verse 1. Jesus makes a statement here saying that I am the true vine and my Father is the gardener. There is enough in that first verse that we could spend a whole morning on. But it is in verse 8 that I think that sets up this whole thing that we ought to, it's at the end of this first paragraph that, that kind of gives us an orientation. Jesus says, my father, at the end of what he explains as being the true vine and that his father is the gardener, my father is glorified by this, that, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Anytime you see something that says, hey, here is my father is glorified by this, Whatever this is, whatever what follows after this is something that we need to pay full attention to. It deserves full attention. When Jesus says, hey, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who sustains our very life, this is what makes him happy. This is what glorifies. We, we ought to lean in and pay attention, write it down, and follow whatever it is this is. It is the north star. It is the primary heading in our life. It is the GPS coordinates of our lives. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, the Father, the gardener, removes. He prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. Uh, fruit is mentioned a number of times. Uh, fruit is three times mentioned here, and then in the following uh, section, fruit is also, verse 8, that you produce much fruit. Uh, there we'll see him mention fruit again in verse 5. And then around that fruit is remain, 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 remain. And so clearly the focus is on bearing fruit, fruit from the vine. Well, what is the vine? Jesus says, I am the true vine. The image of the vine is not strange uh, to these disciples. It is not new. In fact, the vine is a common symbol for what was the, the, the picture of Israel being planted in the ground in a particular location that it would grow and flourish. It, it is a grapevine. It's, uh, it, it is a vine that is intended to produce fruit. Uh, it produced grapes, produced bunches of grapes, big grapes, so that wine might be made. Israel, however, was not a successful vine. It, it, the plant didn't take. It wasn't true to its purposes. That's what true means. It, it, true is, is it's intended for its purpose. Um, I am the true vine. I'm a vine that actually produces good fruit. We see this uh, metaphor, this illustration uh, in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. And in the Psalms, chapter 80, and in Jeremiah, chapter 2, there's, there's plenty of other places. But in Isaiah, where there is a chapter 5, a song about a vineyard, it is, 
It is a story about uh, a vineyard. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. I will sing about the one I love. A song about my loved one's vineyard. That loved one's is the father. You end up finding out later that God has planted a vineyard. And Isaiah is speaking about God as a loved one. It's his vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. A vineyard is a bunch of vines that are planted. It was, it was, it was protected. Jesus uses illustrations of a vineyard that was taken over by those who should have cared for the vines, but they didn't. And he says that there will be judgment coming, that eventually he'll, the, the owner will send his son, they'll honor him, but they beat him up and, and they send him out. And, and the, the owner of the vineyard is, is angered. But Isaiah sings of a vineyard that the, the loved one, God has a vineyard that he cares for and loves it, but, but it does not turn out the way that it was supposed to, not because of his own fault, because of the ones who were supposed to be vines, fruitful vines. Psalm 80, verse 8 you dug up, speaking of God, you dug up a vine from Egypt. That's Israel. He took them out of Egypt, a vine from Egypt, and you drove out the nations and you planted it. You tilled the soil. You created every possible uh, opportunity for it to flourish, but, but it did not flourish. It did not do, it was not true to what it was intended to be. The prophet Jeremiah, chapter 2, verse 21, I planted you, God says to his people, a choice vine. You are the one that I chose. You are, the, you are a beautiful vine. I took you and I planted you from the very best seed. How could you turn then into a degenerate foreign vine? You turned basically into a weed. The imagery here is that as a, as a vine grows, it, it's, it's stalk, it's it goes thick, and then it produces thick, juicy, plump grapes. And Jesus says, I am the true vine. And he'll explain what that means. He is using an imagery. He is truly the one that will flourish. But my father is the gardener. That word there is also farmer. It's one who farms. And what is the, the end goal of a seasoned gardener? It's to cultivate beauty. It's to produce fruit. It's tomatoes in the, in the summer. It's, it's pumpkins in the fall. It's, it's corn. It's, it's provision. It's beauty for a botanist. If you've ever been to uh, Longwood Gardens or you've been to Winterthur, you see this, this architecture of landscape where the right plants are planted at the right time and you see beauty and you see order, and that's what a farmer does. A farmer cultivates beauty. Israel was an unfaithful vine, and the vines are intended to grow and bear fruit, and Jesus is the one who is growing fruit. He is the source of that, as we will see. The people of God are intended to flourish, but up until the point of Jesus, God's people were not flourishing. They were being pointed to something that was greater than them. The Father is a farmer who is intent on obtaining fruit from his garden. Check this out. Jesus says, if I'm the true vine and my father is the gardener, therefore Jesus, again, is a picture of his loving care and protection of his father. His father is caring. He has planted, he has planted something, and, and, and he is in the hands of the father. He has submitted himself to the father. I did a little researching, and uh, in, uh, in England, I found this video. I can share it with you. I'll send it out this week to everybody. It, and uh, it talks about the main pruning seasons for grapevines. It's early winter. But they need regular, regular pruning and maintenance throughout the growing season. Uh, it says that every branch in me that does not produce fruit, 
the gardener removes and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. So here we have a, an illustration that there is, there is to be fruit and things that don't produce fruit, the branches that do not produce fruit, they are broken off. And it's for the purposes of the health of the vine so that the ones that do produce fruit, they're, they're nipped and cultivated and trained to grow more fruit. They need regular pruning and maintenance throughout the growing season. Now, the illustration of the vine, we, we, could, we, we could stretch it to beyond what it needs to be, but we, we're not going to do that because Jesus is using a metaphor. We don't need to read everything into it. Well, everything we know about a vine, a grapevine, we, that's, that's what Jesus is pointing to. No, Jesus is giving us a picture that's fairly obvious. It's not hard to understand. You plant something in the ground, it should bear fruit, right? I buy burpee seeds at Giant, cucumbers, onions, and watermelon, and if Jesse and I plant them, we should bear fruit, right? Not so. It's a lie. Seeds from the, the Giant do not grow. I have grown a cucumber plant in the back of our yard in a pot. I, I tended, I got a pot, I watered it. Jesse, do we have cucumbers? No. The thing is dead. I don't even know where it went. I came back and it was gone. Somebody probably put it out of its misery. It's gone. I expected cucumbers. There was no fruit. It has been cut off. Jesse took the watermelon seeds and scattered them all over our front yard. If I did not mow the lawn, I'm certain watermelon patches would grow up in the front yard. My onions, Danae told me just yesterday, she said, hey, maybe you'll get onions. They're pathetic things. You do not want me gardening. But in the hands of the father, in the hands of a skilled gardener, in the, in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing, they prune and they cut to the benefit of the growth. Jesus is saying here that I am the one that is going to produce life to you. And the ones who do not, as we'll see, remain in me, the ones that do not produce fruit, the gardener will remove. But those who remain, you will produce much fruit. Judas has just left. This is a clear illustration of like Judas has just left. Go and do what you're going to do quickly. Judas was among Jesus. He was with Jesus, but he did not remain in Jesus. And those who thought they could follow Jesus and they, they heard his words some of them decided not to follow. This, this teaching is too tough. Remember what we said in John? John. John records that Jesus turns to the disciples after telling everybody, drink my blood, eat my flesh, receive me into yourself. And people are like, this is a hard saying. Who can receive it? And they all left him. And there he's left with the 12. And he says, are you going to leave me? And Peter says, who else would we turn to? You are the son of God. Judas has not remained. And so Jesus now is speaking fairly straightforward to his disciples. Jesus is the root. Let's go. So fruit is to be expected, and pruning is guaranteed for a disciple. Jesus doesn't go any further into that. The pruning, uh, as we see in other texts of scriptures, is, is trial. It's persecution. There's pruning that comes that uh, is because uh, not the because the Father uh, desires to discipline us for no reason. The writer in Hebrews says, "Do not despise the discipline of the Lord." He's quoting uh, a passage in Psalms. When we're disciplined, when things come into our lives, they are not, for the Christian, meant to punish us. They are intended to rid us of the things that remain that bear no fruit. It is the sin in our lives. And so there is a consequence when we pursue a particular sin in our life, whether that be 
uh, covetousness or that becomes uh, lust or that is uh, greed or power. The Lord, if we are his and we remain in him, will bring things into our lives that will cut that stuff off. You may lose a job. You may be punished. You may receive uh, criticism or condemnation. You may be embarrassed, but there are things that come into our lives that slow us down, that cut us off from the things that we think give life. The Lord loves you so much that he would take away the things that bring death into your life so that he will give you life. And though you may be grieved for just a little while, these things are for growth. And so when he disciplines us, when he prunes us, it may be painful, but it is for more fruit. Look with me at verse 3, point number 2, a disciple's faith in, obedience to, and conversations with, and that is prayer, with Jesus is what keeps us connected to him. It's how we remain. So Jesus says, I'm the true vine, my father's the gardener. Those that do not produce fruit, he's going to remove from the vine. In other words, the source of life. You're not producing any fruit. There's no evidence in your life. Well, we'll see what that is really quickly. Three, Jesus says, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken. Remember when he washes their feet? He's basically telling them, you believe that I am the son of God. You do not need an entire bath. You do need your feet cleaned. For those that are already clean, the word that I've spoken to you, their early confession of belief in Jesus Christ should assure there, that's what Nat was talking about, the security that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, how do we remain in Jesus Christ? Jesus says, remain in me when you trust me. Look how many times remain is there. Verse 4, remain, remain, remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. That makes sense, right? When we cut things off from the vine, they don't grow anymore. As soon as you pluck that tomato, it's not going to grow anymore. There's a right time when we pluck it off, right? If you preemptively cut something off, it's not going to grow. It's just common sense. So what does it mean to remain in Jesus Christ? It means that we trust him. Remaining in him is we look to him and we believe. We have a faith. Faith is the assurance of things unseen. So when we look to Jesus, first we remain in him by believing in him. And we remain in him by believing in him to the very end. Despite what we hear, Jesus is not really God. He's just a good teacher. Jesus did not really say that. Jesus is not this. Jesus is not that. No, 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 no. The words that he has taught me, the words that I read, I believe. And though I do not see him, I love him, Peter says. So the words that Jesus teaches and the words that we read causes us to have faith and belief in a Jesus that we don't see, and that's how we remain. We continue to believe. Struggle with the Christian life is not a sign of our unbelief. Struggle is just a sign of us becoming more and more like him. Complete leaving of Jesus is a sign of unbelief. So you may struggle with something in your life over and over again and continue to trust Jesus for your sanctification, but the initial belief is sent to us by the Holy Spirit so that our eyes see, and then we trust Jesus. We remain in him, and his promise is that when we trust him, he will remain in us. Isn't that good news? We trust him, he remains in us. Verse 4. We cannot produce fruit apart from the vine unless it remains on the vine. So we will not grow in Christ's likeness. We will not become more like the person that God desires us to be unless we continue to trust and look to Jesus. 
Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches, you are not the source of life, I am the source of life. So at any point, if you get off the vine or think that you, need, you can do things on your own, you're in trouble. It's like, I got this, God, thanks. I appreciate that sermon. Man, I'm going to do well for the next five months. I'm going to just see a church, boom, I'll see you in six months. And then you go out there and the wolves get you and you start to fail and you come back beat up and broken and battered and you wonder why, why am I struggling so much? Well, you idiot, because you went out on your own. You can't just do things on your own and expect you to do that. What Jesus is very clear about this, you remain in me, trust in me. If you do not trust in me, it's not going to go well for you. But because of God's graciousness, he brings us back continually. He gives us opportunity. The Father in heaven brings us things so that we would go, go to Jesus. Go to my son. Go to my son. You're mine. The words that I've hidden in your heart, a disciple finds their faith strengthened by the words that are in his heart. The one who remains in me, verse 5, and I in him produces much fruit. There it is, that expectation to produce much fruit. You can't do anything without me. Verse 6, if anyone does not remain in me, that is, if you do not obey what I've said, if you do not obey the words that I've said, you know, Jesus says earlier in that, like, I, I am obedient to the Father. If you obey me, disciples, if you follow me, if you trust me, you will bear fruit. You will be in the Father. The mark of a disciple is obedience, the distinction here is clear that, verse 6, if anyone does not remain in me, in other words, you could replace that with, if anyone does not have faith, if anyone does not trust in me, they are thrown aside like a branch and they wither. They're gathered up, they throw them into the fire, and they are, they are burned. This is, not, this is not the first time this has been said. This is an allusion to the, the last and final day. The great judgment. It is clear, without faith there is no life in Jesus. Apart from the vine, there is no faith in Jesus. Dead branches that do not remain in Jesus are discarded. In Revelation chapter 21, 8, the details for those who have a dead faith, that there is no faith, this is what they're like. At the end of the age, when God gathers up all of his people, he will also gather up the cowards, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolatries, every single liar, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is, this is crucial to understanding of whether or not you remain in the vine or you don't. If you are not bearing fruit, this is for your understanding that you can, as John says in his epistles, he says, this, so that you might know. You could self-evaluate. Is there any fruit in my life? Sometimes we struggle with thinking that we're Christians. One of the ways to think about whether or not you truly are renewed by the Holy Spirit is whether or not you look to Jesus and are concerned with what he says. That's an initial sign that you're probably his. Because you can do the Christian life. You can go to church. You can do the Christian things. And people can see you doing things on the surface but not know you at all. And if they saw your life at, at work or at home and they saw things, they're like, dude, you don't even talk about Jesus. You don't read your Bible. You don't even pray to him. You don't talk. There's no evidence of fruit in your life. What makes you think that you're a Christian? You can fool other people, but you cannot fool God. And you ought to be scared so much so that you cry out for mercy and say, I, would, I, I, I trust that you're telling me the truth here. 
And when you know that it is the truth, the other sign is that you begin to bear more fruit. It doesn't matter how big or how much. It's that there is evidence of fruit in your life. And fruit in our lives is what is expected of these disciples. Now, the beauty of the gospel is that all of these sins can be forgiven. You can be a coward now, but be forgiven tomorrow. You can be faithless now, but be forgiven. You can be detestable, immoral. You can be a murderer, sexually immoral, and all of these things. But the moment you cry to Christ out for mercy, he will give you mercy, unconditional grace. And you do not need to be found in that day. That's how you measure your fruit. That's how you know that you are remaining in him. Look at verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you will produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. The Father is glorified. He is honored. He's lifted up when we bear good fruit, when we become like Christ. And therefore, a life in pursuit of proving to be Jesus' disciple is a life that is absolutely worth pursuing and living. Because it not only glorifies God, there we glorify our creator. When we seek to be like Christ, we glorify God. Not only do we glorify God, but there's joy in it. I promise there's joy in it. Look at verse 11 with me. Jesus tells us, I have told you these things, why? So that my joy, my joy would be in you. And what is the joy of the son? The joy of the son is to honor the father because he loves the father. There's everything good and perfect in the father. And the father loves the son because the son loves him. And he is the reflection of the father. He is a perfect being. They love each other in mutual admiration for one another. There is no greater glory or perfection that they could set their eyes upon because they are the pinnacle of goodness and perfection. Jesus is joyful in his obedience to the Father. That's his joy. Father, you are my joy. You want me to do this? I will do this. It is a joy to go to the cross. I don't think we wake up every morning, Jesus, it is a joy for me to suffer for you. I love this. This is great. Bring it on. We don't, we don't naturally wake up wanting to suffer so that we would find greater joy. But yet, when we love Jesus, here's the beauty of it. We cannot produce enough love or acts of good works or joy in our hearts to please the Father. We just can't do it. It's impossible. But guess what? When we are in Christ, what it says is that the Father looks at us in Christ. He doesn't even see any of our filthiness. He sees the joy of Christ and he says, Ah, I joyfully received my Son and everything that is in my Son. We are shielded by Christ. We can go to the Father and the Father says, I delight in you. Not because of what you've done, because you're in my Son. Jesus says that my Joy will be in you, and your joy will be complete. That word complete is perfection. That means that there is nothing lacking. There will be no scraps of joy left on the table. All of the fullness of the joy of the Father and of the Son will be in you. Though we don't experience it now, we will experience it then. The fullness of our joy will be on that day when we resurrect from the dead and the faithless are separated with the faithful and the faithful are entered into eternity. Come and receive my Father's blessing. I've gone and prepared a place for you. You will then feel the joy. In all of its fullness, there will be no more sin, no more, no more uh, filter that you can't receive. It, it will be overwhelming, and it will take you in eternity to enjoy that joy. That's the hope of the believer. 
That's why we remain in him. Even though you don't want to give pornography up, even though you don't want to apologize to the one that you've been angered at, even though you don't want to obey the instructions that have been given to you because it's painful, even though you have to go to your employer and confess that you've stolen and receive the consequences, there is great joy in that for the believer. The difference between the one who is not a believer and the one who is a believer is that when we do the right things, at the consequence of our own suffering, we have joy in it. One time, I, I don't know if I've confessed this yet, but my family and I were traveling. I made a wrong turn. I was not listening to my wife. She had GPS directions. Somehow we got on the turnpike, and I was just so used to doing the same thing over and over again that I got on the turnpike, and I was going west when I should have gone east. But you know, on the turnpike, there's 20 miles between the exits. So what did I do? I did what any wise, understanding father would do is when I saw an opening in the gate from somebody leaving the rest center, I hit the gas and I went right through that exit gate. Do you know what I'm talking about? You can't get access to the rest centers unless you have a card and it opens up for employees. I exited the turnpike illegally. <laughs> but we did a U-turn. Guess what happened in my heart immediately? I was so convicted because I broke the law. I broke the law, and I, I was ashamed because I showed my kids, I modeled for them sin, and I, it, it, sat, it did not sit well with me, so much so that I called the state police, and I had to get this anguish off my heart, and they lit, I think they literally said to me, are, are you kidding me? Like, whatever, you're fine. There was joy. Because I wasn't going to get hunted down, but more so because my conscience was clear and there was joy. If I had, my, if I had to have a $200 fine, which is the max, I would rather pay a $200 fine. And I don't do that always, but I say this, that the joy of doing what is right is what is the mark of a believer and is the consistency of that. And the Father will train you to have that joy if you're his. And so if you lament the things that are coming into your life right now, it is because the Father loves you and wants you to be like him. Finally, there is a deep and satisfying and complete joy that is promised to us and in the life to come when we pursue a life of obedience in Jesus Christ. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands. It is very clear. The obedience of the Son is the model for the obedience of the believer. You cannot escape this. Salvation is through great, by faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone. I'm a five-point Calvinist through and through. But it is evidently clear that in the scriptures that that being said we have a responsibility to obey I must choose to obey I must choose to believe and I must persevere to the end it's not autopilot you don't just get to be the frozen chosen have you ever heard that before I get a free golden ticket into the factory of Jesus Christ at the end it's Willy Wonka's factory I just can do whatever I want I've got this ticket that's not how it works you must persevere to the end by choosing to remain in Christ you must obey. 
our joy is incomplete without Jesus. And he commands us, verse 12, to love one another. That he has laid down his life for his friends. We are close, personal friends of God when we are obedient. Are we always obedient? No. But in Christ, the obedience of Christ is upon us. And therefore, though we fail, though you fail, it should, not, it should not create such fear in you that you think that he has left you. You confess and move forward. You repent and move forward. He has chosen these disciples. He promises them that as we live this life, in verse 18, the world is going to hate us. They will persecute Christ. He's about to go to the cross. They're going to persecute them. They hated me, he says. They're going to hate you. But fear not, verse 26, when the counselor comes, you will fulfill the mission that I've given to you. These men are about to be sent into the lion's den. And Jesus is saying, though you see me murdered, though you see me buried, I'm coming back. Fear not. And when I leave, though you can't understand this now, when I leave, I'm going to send the helper. And he's going to help you. And you're going to testify to the truth of this. And millions upon millions of people are going to be attached to the vine. They're going to come from the vine. And it's going to be because of your faithfulness, guys. There is joy in the pursuit of Jesus. May we be a church that cultivates this joy, that we encourage one another to continue a life that is in the pursuit of Jesus a life set on proving ourselves to be disciples because it glorifies God and there's deep joy in this. It is not drudgery, I promise you. When we come face to face with the grace of God in Jesus Christ, I promise you that drudgery is not what we call the Christian life. Though some may say that that is, it is just simply not true. Because I do not want to be separated from my Savior. He has given his life for me. I gladly and sometimes resistingly want to lay my life down for him and to remain in him because the consequence of not remaining in him is, is scary. It is eternal separation from God. It is punishment in hell. It is fire. It is brimstone. It is destruction. And it is true, and it will happen, but not for the one who remains in the vine. So here's some applications. One, how do we remain in the vine? Well, friends, the reason we gather on Sundays is so that we would worship and be reminded together. So how do we cultivate? How do we become a church in this community where countless thousands of people are yet without hope of the gospel? Where are they going to see a people transformed by the grace of God? It's going to be, it's going to be as we live in the world, but also as we gather together. That Sundays is a priority. Worship is a priority. Christ is a priority. Let's make Sunday mornings together a weekly priority. In a smaller venue, home groups. If it's possible, join a home group. Get connected with a smaller venue of people so that you can walk through life as you struggle, as you rejoice, as you encourage one another. Home groups are a great opportunity for you to be known and to know others and to open up with one another and to learn the word of the gospel to learn Jesus together. We do that on Sundays. We do that in a home group. And I would encourage you to seek out discipleship. Join in on a men's and women's discipleship group. That's me. There's one that meets here for men on Wednesday mornings from 730 to 830. 
Marie Baduski is leading a discipleship group for women. I think it's on Mondays. Where's Marie? See that? That's Marie. See Marie? Stand up, Marie. I know. I know. You hate it. That's Marie. If you're a woman, see Marie if this is an opportunity that you would like to grow. It's a short-term uh, a study. It's discipleship. Discipleship happens in the course of life, but also like intentional discipleship happens in the context of, uh, of relationships. And so whenever you can sit with other people and grow in relationship, we encourage you here, if you're part of this church, part of this congregation, that these are the areas, these are the ways in which you can remain in Christ and to be strengthened and to grow. We can pursue the Lord in prayer. That's the conversation with God. Jesus says, if you ask anything, clearly in the text, Jesus says, if you remain in me and my words in me, you're going to ask for things to be like me. And so my Father is glorified when you do this. Prayer is vital to the life of a believer. And so there's a free book for everyone this morning. There's a book by Donald Whitney on the way out. There's a book. Grab it. It's small. It's thin. Grab it. Read it. Pray through it. Take it. Grow in your pursuit in the Lord in prayer. But most importantly, finally, the greatest application that I could ever leave you with is to remain in Jesus to place your faith in Christ and your trust in him because apart from him, you can do nothing. What that means is apart from him, there is absolutely no chance of life. And life is what we need. And life is in Christ and life abundantly. The sermon you've just listened to is a presentation of Church Newtown Square. To find out more about our church, check out churchnsq.org. That's C-H-V-R-C-H-N-S-Q dot org. You are welcome to copy and distribute this sermon to others as long as you do not do it for commercial purposes or alter, transform, or build upon this talk in any way.